live out. Uh, and this morning, uh, that's the category that it would fall in. Uh, the passage I'm going to read is not hard to understand, um, but it's tough in the sense of it can be tough to live out. So um, let me pray, and then we'll think together about Galatians 5. Holy Father, thank you. Thank you that we can gather now as a church family around your table, around the feast of your word. Oh, all of scripture is God-breathed. All of it. It's all true. And it's all useful for training, for teaching, for rebuking, for exhorting. It's our guide. It's, a, it's our comfort. It's our encouragement. So I pray that you would help us, Lord, this morning to understand your word. And by your spirit, I pray you'd help us to apply it to our lives. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, here's the thinking. Last week was Friendship Sunday. I was given my text, and I was glad to preach on it. It was uh, from Galatians 5. It was the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is um, one of the, I would, I would say it's one of the most famous lists in the Bible. The Bible. There's lots of lists in the Bible. The fruit of the Spirit is one of the more famous ones. Nine, nine items listed there. What's, what's maybe slightly less well-known is that right before that beautiful list of the fruit of the Spirit, Paul provides a much darker contrasting list called the acts of the flesh or the works of the flesh. That comes right before. That list of the works of the flesh comes right before the list of the fruit of the Spirit. And so as much as I would like to just leap from one positive text to the next every Sunday and never pause to look at the painful ones, the reality is it's important for us to consider the full counsel of God. And it's important for us not to pick and choose only the passages that make us feel good about ourselves. There's some hard passages in the Bible as well, and we need to pay attention to those too. And so... The question is, why does Paul contrast his discussion of the fruit of the Spirit with a very honest and frank discussion about the works of the flesh? Why is that list in our Bible, the acts of the flesh, the works of the flesh, and what can that list teach us about ourselves and about God? That's what we want to answer this morning. We've already prayed, and so let's read it. Galatians Galatians comes right after some of the longer Pauline epistles of Romans and then 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And then you will bump into Galatians. Galatians in chapter 5. And I'm going to start in verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, 
peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such, such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 16 opened with a promise. Did you spot that promise? It says, walk by the Spirit. Right? If There's an implied if there. If you walk by the Spirit, then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a promise. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, walk by the Spirit and you won't sin. That sounds good, right? I want that. I want to walk by the Spirit and not sin. So how do we do that? This passage explains how, and it does so by talking about a conflict that's taking place in our hearts. And who is the conflict between? Verse 17 answers that question clearly multiple times. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. Okay, so who's at war here? The Spirit and the flesh, right? Not exactly. Read a little closer. It's a subtle difference, but it matters. What does it say? It says, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. They means the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. That's who's fighting in your heart right now. These two conflicting desires are in you now, and they're at war within you. These two desires, desires of the flesh, desires of the Spirit, cannot cohabitate peacefully. They can't. They can't do it. They can't live together in peace. And the fact that they are both present in your heart means that there is a civil war going on inside of you right now. That is what the Bible teaches. All right, so what is the flesh and what are the desires of the flesh? What are we talking about here? Well, when Paul says the flesh, he means the natural state of humanity after the fall and apart from the redeeming work of God's grace in our lives and the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our lives. The flesh is Paul's way of referring to the sinful nature. The flesh is you and I in our natural state apart from the power of God's redeeming and sanctifying grace in our lives. So Paul is saying that these desires of the sinful nature are trying to take God's place in our lives. They are opposed to they are in conflict with, they cannot be at peace with the desires of the Spirit. Those two desires are at war. All right, well, what are the desires of the Spirit then? Well, if the desires of the flesh refers to the desires of our fallen nature apart from grace, then the desires of the Spirit refers to the desires of our new nature after we have been redeemed and made a new creation in Christ Jesus. The desires of the flesh are what we have by our natural birth, by nature, and the desires of the Spirit are the new desires that we have because we've been born again by the Spirit of God and made a new creation. And both of those desires are in us. All of us. We are not completely sanctified 
yet. The desires of the old sinful nature still reside in there somewhere in all of us. But along with those old desires that stick around, we have these new sanctified desires of the Spirit that are in us by faith, and the war is on, according to Paul. And we all know what that war feels like. Right? This, we are not walking in, in the realm of hypotheticals here. You know what this feels like. Even the most godly people that I've known in my life talk about the battle with sin and temptation in a believer's heart. In fact, it's the most godly people I know that are most aware of this battle in their heart. All right, so that, that battle is happening. What's the battle plan? The, art, the answer that Paul gives here is that in order to fight this fight, we need to walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, what does that mean? Are you walking by the Spirit right now? How would you know if you're walking by the Spirit? How is that different than just walking? What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, walk is a common biblical metaphor. It's all over the Bible, and it means to conduct your life. It's a metaphor referring to how you live your life, right? So there's a verse where Paul uh, tells the Thessalonians, walk in a manner worthy of your calling what he says to him. What he's saying is, live your life, conduct your life in a way that's worthy of your calling in Christ. It's what walk means. It means live it out. When in Psalm 1 it says, blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, it means blessed is the one who conducts his or her life in a way that does not accord with the counsel of the wicked. Right? So when Paul tells us to walk by the Spirit, he means for us to conduct our whole lives under the constant moment-by-moment moment direction, control, guidance of the Holy Spirit of God who lives in us. That's walking by the Spirit. And the fundamental assumed premise of that command is that the Spirit does in fact live in us by grace. That the Spirit is real and has taken up residence in our hearts, and because He's there in us, He is imparting new sanctified desires. And those new desires, desires of the Spirit, are opposed to the old desires of the flesh. He's really real, the Spirit, and He's giving us new desires. So walking by the Spirit means paying attention to, listening to, the guidance of the Spirit who lives in us and has given us new desires. And allowing those new desires to to, to take control of us and to determine our actions, right? Those desires are there. If the Spirit's in you, those desires are there, but you need to act on them. You need to live them out, right? Well, how does that work? Well, let me, let me illustrate from a story from my life, true story. Well, this is back in Milwaukee when I was a pastor in Milwaukee. For about four years of ministry in Milwaukee, our church office, we didn't own a turn off church office. We rented, and we rented the back half of a dentist office. And so for four years, I wrote all of my sermons to the noise of drills and crying children. And uh, I got very good at tuning that out, right? Just ignoring the noises of crying kids. I am, I am like an Olympian when it comes to ignoring crying kids. I can totally do it, right? But one day... I'm in my office, which is in the back of a dentist's office, in just this little kind of closet of a room. And I'm sitting there, and I'm writing a sermon. And I hear the cry of a little girl, like I do almost every day there. And I immediately get up, walk through this little maze 
of cubicles and go into the dentist's office to see if I can help. Now, why? I hear that every day. Well, because this time, it was the cry of my daughter. I had forgotten that she had a checkup that day. I, heard, I didn't know she was there, but I heard, and I immediately knew. So even though I am somehow have this miraculous ability to tune out the voices of pretty much any other crying kid in the world, somehow I was able to hear and recognize and respond to the voice of my own daughter. That cry didn't just hit me here, it hit me here. Why? Well, because I love her. I, I love her so much that it almost feels like she's part of me, right? And, and even though I wasn't actively sitting there trying to hear her voice, I heard it because my heart is tuned to that voice. And so my affection for my daughter, my love for my daughter, moved me to action when I heard her voice. I'll say that again. It's really the whole point of the sermon. My love for my daughter moved me to action when I heard her voice. You want to put sin to death in your life? Then cultivate a superior love for God and for the gospel. And that new affection, right? That love in your heart for God and for His ways, that's the desire of the Spirit. Those are the desires of the Spirit. And those desires of the Spirit have the power to, to expel the power of sin from your life. It's no match. It doesn't even compare. When God is sweet to us, sin becomes bitter. Right? That's what walking by the Spirit is. That's what uh, living according to the desires of the Spirit is. It means God is so sweet to me. I love God so much that sin loses its appeal. I'm not interested in that anymore. I got something better now. Once sin loses its appeal, it loses its power. Because the reality is, listen to me, sin does not have any power in your life. It does not. Not if you're in Christ. If you are a Christian, sin can't make you do anything. Don't ever say that it can. It cannot. You are no longer under the dominion of sin. That's Romans 6. You're not under the dominion of sin. You don't answer to sin, and sin cannot make you do anything if you are in Christ. The only way that sin can get us to do anything now is by making it look attractive, making it look alluring, right? That's called temptation. So when the Spirit moves in and takes up residence in our lives, when we pay attention to the new desires that He gives us, God looks attractive to us. Holiness appears like the beautiful thing that it is. We are captured by a superior affection for God. And when that happens, sin loses its power to persuade or to influence. It no longer looks appealing. It has been expelled by a superior affection. Walking by the Spirit means listening to, paying attention to, responding to the direction and guidance of the Spirit in us. And we don't have to make that up or invent that. He's there. He's in us giving us these desires and affections. The question is, are we listening? Do we hear it? Or have we handed the microphone to the desires of the flesh? Right? Because the sinful nature would be glad to grab that microphone and get you to focus on anything other than God. And the sinful nature doesn't really care what that thing is. He'll use something good or he'll use something sinful and evil. doesn't matter as long as he gets your focus off of God. 
right? Anything that you love more than you love God is a desire of the flesh. Okay, and that's an internal battle. That's what we've been focusing on so far is the, the, the battle in our heart of the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit, right? But that now Paul shifts his attention to the external outworking of the internal battle. He goes from talking about desires to talking about acts or works of the flesh. Because inevitably, the desires that we cultivate in our hearts will manifest themselves in actions, right? Our actions begin as desires, and then they manifest outwardly. And that's why Paul does it in this order. Desires first, then actions. Right? This is why the battleground for this war takes place on the field of our desires, because it's desires that determine actions. In verse 19, Paul gives a list of the acts of the flesh. This is not a comprehensive list. That's why it ends with the phrase, and the like. It's a representative list. These are the kinds of acts that the desires of the flesh produce. Things like, here's the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Those are all sexual sins. Abuses of God's good gift of sexual intimacy. God gave us that gift but it is a gift that came with boundaries and guidelines. Our sexuality is so important to God that when Paul gives this list of works of the flesh, he leads with three words related to sexual sin. Don't think for a minute that God doesn't care about human sexuality. He does. The Bible teaches that sexual intimacy is a blessing given by God, intended to be enjoyed, within the context of the covenant relationship of marriage. Removing it from that context through sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, turns that good gift into a work of the flesh. Then next, after listing three sexual sins, words related to sexual sins, he, the next in the list are words related to idolatry and sorcery, sins related to false worship, which means worshiping anything other than the one true God is a work of the flesh. The flesh wants to turn our attention and our desires away from God Almighty through idolatry or sorcery, pursuing false gods instead of the one true God. And then next in the list, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a longer section, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy. This group of sins has to do with the way that we relate to one another. The works of the flesh will sow discord and hatred between people so that there's no relational peace. Lack of unity is a result of the desires of the flesh manifesting themselves in the works of the flesh. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of unity. The Spirit unites our hearts together in Christ. The desires of the Spirit promote unity. If we experience lack of unity with one another, we can be sure that it's the desires of the flesh that's causing that. Now, that doesn't mean we'll, we'll all agree with each other on all major issues. We surely won't. But it means that we will experience unity despite our disagreements if we're walking by the Spirit. And finally, the last two words, drunkenness and orgies, which is just a picture of being absolutely morally out of control, right? No self-discipline, enslaved to one's appetites and desires, not able to say no to any craving, never being satisfied, always wanting more. 
That is a bleak list. That feels dark and heavy and oppressive just to read that list. That is how it should feel. It should disturb us to think about the works of the flesh, enslaved to sexual sin, worshiping false gods, unable to love anyone other than oneself, morally without discipline and out of control. That is a bleak and hopeless way to live. That is life apart from the Spirit, according to Paul. And then Paul issues this sobering warning that should give us all pause. Mr. Saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no one may boast, right? That Paul says this, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not exactly what we wanted Paul to say there, is it? What we wanted Paul to say is, you know what? Those things are no big deal. Do you know what? You can safely ignore those things if you happen to spot them in your own life. Don't worry. What we wanted him to say is that those who do such things, well, they should rest in grace. They should know that God loves you, and they should not worry about anything. But what we don't want to hear from Paul in this moment is that those who live like this are excluded from the kingdom of God, but that is exactly what Paul says here. And despite the fact that that I really am a nice guy, I'm not going to attempt to soften what Paul is saying here because it would not be safe for us to take this warning lightly. So is Paul here linking our actions with our salvation? Yes, he clearly is. He says those who live like this, actions, those who live like this won't be saved. Apparently, our actions matter. But stay with me here, because Paul is not linking works and salvation in the same way that the legalists or the Pharisees were doing. He's doing something different here. There's an important grammatical point here that needs to be made if we're going to understand what this warning is really saying. The grammatical issue has to do with this phrase that's translated, live like this. Those who live like this won't inherit the kingdom of God. Live like this. Paul does not mean that if ever you do any of these things, you won't inherit the kingdom of God, right? Who of us would stand if that, if that was the standard? If you ever do any of these things, you're out. None of us would be in then, right? That's not what Paul is saying. But the phrase that Paul uses that gets translated live like this, those who live like this, is what's known to, if you're a grammar nerd such as myself, then you'll know that that word is a present active participle. A present active participle. What that means is that it's not just referring to doing something once or doing something occasionally, but the present active participle means that it's someone who makes a practice of doing these things as a way of life. That this person is defined by these things. It's it's, it's what you do as a way of being. You live like this. Those who live like this. And what Paul is saying is that if this is the way you live, if this is the pattern of being for you, if sin is what you're all about, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why not? Because if your whole life is defined by works of the flesh, then you clearly have not humbled yourself, repented of your sin, received the forgiveness uh, by grace through faith that's yours in Christ, and been indwelt and empowered by the Spirit of God. 
You see the point that Paul's making here. Our, our external actions are never what saves us. We're saved by grace through faith. The Bible is crystal clear on that point. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But our actions provide external corroborating evidence of the reality of the fact that we have indeed been born again and made a new creation by the Spirit. And if there is no evidence in our life that any kind of change has taken place when we confessed faith in Christ, if there's no fruit of the Spirit, then we need to ask, start asking some hard questions of ourselves. Like whether or not we really have repented of our sins and submitted our lives to the reign and rule and authority of Jesus Christ. Listen, there's no verse in the whole Bible that says if you pray a particular prayer one time in your life, you will inherit eternal life. There's no verse that says that. There's no verse that says if you attend church and if you volunteer your time at church, you'll be saved. There's no verse that says that. There's no verse that says, well, if people generally like you, And if you're pleasant to be around, you will be saved. There's no verse that says that. What it says is that those who repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ and call on his name for salvation, they will be saved. Now this warning is not intended to take away the assurance of salvation from a genuine believer who has faith in Christ but still sometimes stumbles and falls into sin like we all do. This warning is intended to function as a reality check for those whose lives give no evidence of spiritual life, no spiritual fruit at all. And so now in an effort to be as practical as possible, I'm just going to close this sermon by talking about what it means for you and I to do what's described in verse 24 when Paul tells us to crucify the flesh. Crucify the flesh. That's graphic, it's gross, it's unpleasant, but it's necessary if we want healthy fruit in our lives. So how do we crucify the flesh? The first thing that you need to do when crucifying the flesh is to be merciless. Crucifixion is a horrible way to die. Think about what kind of person it would take to drive nails through another human being and then let them hang there until they die a slow death of suffocation. You'd have to be absolutely ruthless to do that to someone, That's the attitude we have to adopt towards our sinful nature, right? There's a reason that Paul uses the metaphor of crucifixion. We need to be absolutely ruthless, merciless when it comes to dealing with our sin. Our sin cannot get off with a warning or a light sentence or probation or just tell it, well, well, it's no big deal, you're fine. Whenever we spot sin in our lives, whether that sexual sin of looking at things that you know you shouldn't be looking at, or whether it's the sin about gossiping about others when they aren't around, or whether it's the sin of impatience or pride or refusing to forgive someone, whether it's big or small, we need to take it seriously. And according to this passage, it needs to be crucified. Crucify the desires of the flesh. Second, we need to recognize that this is not only be ruthless, but we need to recognize this is a painful process. Crucifixion wasn't fun. There's, again, there's a reason Paul chose this metaphor. It's part of you that's dying up there on the cross. It hurts to put sin to death. Don't expect the process of putting sin to death to be fun or easy. It's not. Expect it to hurt, and then you won't be surprised when you find 
that having nails driven through your old sinful nature is a painful process. And third, crucifixion of the flesh needs to be decisive. Don't waffle on this. Don't second-guess your decision to crucify the flesh. Crucifixion is a long process. After someone had been crucified, sometimes it took days for that person to finally die. And so it is with our flesh. It has been crucified, but it is not fully dead. And so it is potentially still dangerous, and so we need to be vigilant. Because our crucified flesh will start to beg for mercy, and it'll say, hey, I'm not really that bad. Everybody does this. Don't worry about it. I don't deserve to be on this cross. You're overreacting. You're being a legalist. You're being a Pharisee. Where's the grace? Let me down. I won't cause any more problems. I'll just bring you pleasure. Those are lies. Lies. And you, we look at our old flesh up there on the cross and we start to think, ah, he's not going to hurt anybody anymore. He's learned his lesson. He's harmless. I'll just let him down. I think he's under control now. Lies. Lies. Be decisive and stand guard and don't let your sinful nature down from the cross. The Romans used to put a guard to watch over someone who had been crucified to make sure that they really died, to make sure his friends didn't come and get him down and rescue him. And we need to do the same thing. Stand guard over your crucified sinful nature and don't let it down off the cross. Don't think you can play games with temptation. Don't experiment and see how close to sinning you can get away with without actually sinning. Just don't sin. In your thoughts, in your words, or in your actions, be decisive. Keep your old flesh on the cross until it dies. That is what Paul is advocating for here. Take sin seriously. Put it to death. That is what it means to walk by the Spirit. It means that the flesh gets crucified and we respond with faithful obedience when we hear the voice of the Spirit so that our lives and our church will bear the fruit of the Spirit and not the works of the flesh. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord, holiness is beautiful. Faithfulness is lovely. Obedience is blessing. You have laid out a path of obedience for us, not to punish us, but to bless. And you have given us your spirit to empower us to walk that path of faithful obedience and to bear the fruit of the spirit. And yet we recognize before you this morning that there is such a thing as the desires of the flesh. That the desires of the flesh also are still present in our hearts, and they are at war with the desires of the Spirit. And Lord, it's so easy to take that lightly, to act as if that's no big deal, to emphasize grace so much that we forget that sin is actually a big deal, that sin actually matters, that you've called us to a life of faithfulness and obedience. And so, Lord, I pray for your help. I pray we need, we need your help to take sin seriously and to not let it off the hook. So please sober us and give us a right assessment of what sin is and what harm it can cause. And then please enable us to walk by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.